success. <laughs> so, today we're going to look at this discourse um, to Nakula Pita, or Pita means father, so it's Nakula's father. Nakula Pita and Nakula Mata, Nakula's mother, uh, show up in the suttas every once in a while, and the commentaries say that they were the Buddha's parents in a number of past lives. It's not clear the commentary is necessarily accurate, but it's kind of nice to consider this couple was pretty amazing. Um, one time they came to the Buddha and they said, you know, ever since we were young and we were married, we've never, they each talked about how they never had a, a, a thought, a negative thought or a transgression even in the mind against the other one. They wanted to be together, uh, the way they put it, within each other's sight this life and in the life to come. How can we do that? And he said, be the same in faith, the same in wisdom, the same in generosity, and the same in virtue. And then you're likely to be together again in the next life. There's another very sweet story about Nakula Pita being very ill, like gravely ill, and his wife, Nakula Mata, talks to him about all these things that he should not worry about. Don't worry if after you die that I'm not going to be able to take care of the kids and keep things going. I'm very skilled. I can do all these things, sewing and knitting and whatever, you know, and I can take care of it. You don't think that I'm going to find another man because I have no interest in doing that. We're living on the eight precepts already. I'm not going back. <laughs> Stuff like that. Don't think I'm not going to go visit the Buddha. I'm going to need to visit the Buddha and his disciples even more after you're gone. And He was so inspired, he just got well. <laughs> <laughs> so in this sutta... Nakula Pita um, is really getting old. And so it start, this, this discourse starts out, so I've heard at one time the Buddha was staying, staying in the land of the Bhagas on Crocodile Hill in the Deer Park at Basekala's Wood. Then the householder Nakula's father, so Nakula Pita, if you use the Pali, went up to the Buddha, bowed and sat down to one side and said to the Buddha, I am an old man, elderly and senior. I'm advanced in years and I've reached the final stage of life. My body is ailing and I'm constantly unwell. I hardly ever get to see the esteemed mendicants May the Buddha please advise me and, and instruct me. It will be for my lasting welfare and happiness. That's so true, householder. It's so true. For the body is ailing, trapped in its shell. 
If anyone dragging around this body claimed to be healthy even for a minute, what's that but foolishness? So you should train like this. Though my body is ailing, my mind will be healthy. That's how you should train. And then the householder, Nakula's father, approved and he agreed with what the Buddha said. And he got up from his seat, bowed, and respectfully circled the Buddha, keeping him on his right. Then he went up to the venerable Sariputta, bowed, and sat down to one side. Sariputta said to him, Householder, your faculties are so very clear, and your complexion is pure and bright. Did you get, a, did you get to hear a Dhamma talk in the Buddha's presence today? Yeah, what else could it be? <laughs> Just now the Buddha anointed me with the deathless ambrosia of a Dhamma talk. But what kind of ambrosial Dhamma talk has the Buddha anointed you with? So Nikula's father told Sariputta all about what had happened. But didn't you feel the need to ask the Buddha the further question, like how do you define someone ailing in body and ailing in mind? and someone ailing in body and healthy in mind? How is a person ailing in body? And So there, there was a, a long kind of interchange. I don't know how many of you read the text in your handout, but there's a long kind of exchange about what well, you should have asked, or, you know, like, please, sorry, put to tell me. <laughs> So then, this is Venerable Sariputta's answer. How is a person ailing in body and ailing in mind? It's when an uneducated, ordinary person has not seen the noble ones and is neither skilled nor trained in the qualities of a noble one. They've not seen good persons and are neither skilled nor trained in the qualities of a good person. They regard form primarily meaning the body as self, self as having form, form in self, or self in form. So this is like, what do you think is self? And is it the body? Or is the self in the body? Or does the body somehow in this self? That's... They're obsessed with the thought. I am form, form is mine. But that form of theirs decays and perishes, which gives rise to sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, and distress. And then the same for feeling. I think feeling is what we are. Or the perception of, or the perception, or... It, this is Venerable Sujato's translation or choices. Now, the Pali word is sankara, and it's trans, translated in a number of ways in, by different people. Um, volitional formations, sometimes mental formations. It's mental activity that has choice involved in it. So when we are thinking something on purpose rather than just what pops into your mind or making decisions or whatever, it's it's that mental activity that has some kind of volition involved. When we make 
karma, there's, al- there's always some kind of volition involved in it. An intentional killing creates the negative result of having killed. But if you just walk across the road and you accidentally kill a living being, which probably happens a lot, there's no negative result from that. There's no intention to harm. So that's a longer conversation, but that's kind of where we're, you know, that that part of the collection of five things that the Buddha teased apart in order to show us that this collection, whatever we think it is here, really can't be a self. There's no part of it that can be a self. So he said, the untaught ordinary person thinks this is the self, this mental, this, what I do mentally, and their consciousness is another thing that they think we think they they think they are. Um, one who's untaught might think self is having consciousness, consciousness in self, or self in consciousness. Then they're obsessed with this idea: I am consciousness, or consciousness is mine. But consciousness changes, decays, perishes. And then this gives rise to sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, and distress. And this is how a person is ailing in body and ailing in mind. So how do we avoid that? The noble disciple who has gotten some teachings from enlightened beings learned about the Dhamma. They don't regard form as self, or self as having form, or form in self, or self in form, etc. They're not obsessed with this. Well, we're not obsess- They're not obsessed with the form itself. It's not as important. They're not obsessed with the idea that they are that form. So when it changes... The sadness, the worry, the fear, the distress doesn't come up. And the same with feeling, perception, choices or mental volitional formations, and consciousness. Oh, take a break. (laughs) Questions? Yes. But what if all I mean by self is this non-enduring entity that has perceptions and volitions and consciousness and form? Um, what if that's what I mean by self? So, yeah. yeah, you're bringing up a good point, and the Buddha talked about how there are two, I don't want to say, He talked about the mundane or conventional usage of the word self. Like, I have this friend. (laughs) I uh, am going to, you know, like, go to the doctor and get my 
bone density scan <laughs> the day after I get back to California. You know, like there's all these ways we talk about ourselves and the Buddha said that's, you have to understand that there are two sort of levels of talking about self. And one is the conventional level and the other one is sort of the, the transcendent level. And the problem with the idea of self, whether we think it's this body or not, or some idea of a soul, whatever, the something that continues on forever, as the Buddha said, it doesn't happen that way. There is no abiding core to what we think of as us. And because all of this um, attachment that we have to these components or to this idea of, you know, me and mine, that's what causes us so much suffering. And once we see through that and recognize that the conventional level self really isn't anything that continues uh, to be stable either, it's process. So you can be talking about this self, all those components are constantly changing. If you think about Think about yourself as a verb rather than a noun. You're a lot closer <laughs> to the reality. As the Buddha said, all of that has is dependent upon other conditions. That's why the body deteriorates and dies. It's dependent on other conditions that have run out. And so there's a sutta where the Buddha said it's much better if people think the body is is their self than the mind because it's so easy to observe the deterioration of the body. But the mind, he said, arises one minute this way and the next minute that way, and there's no consistency in the mind. And so he said it's much harder for people to get that that is not self, this constant process, but process that is, you know, ever-changing. Lots of questions. Okay, yes, Lisa. So what then is reincarnated? That's a very good and common question. And one way to answer that question is, well, I've heard that when the Dalai Lama was asked that, he said, your bad habits... (laughs) And of course, it's also your good habits. <laughs> and one way I think of it is your unfinished business, like the stuff that you haven't let go of that you still... Um, I don't think I've mentioned it to you. My, I say this every once in a while. My, my uncle used to tease my mom. I think she was his favorite sister. And she always had like a, a, a long list of things she wanted to do. And he said, you know, we're going to have to bury that list with you in your coffin because you're just never going to finish it. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> and that's kind of what gets, that's what gets reborn in a way. This is all the stuff that hasn't gone completely still. So Nibbana, the realization of Nibbana, is the letting go of the clinging, the attachment, the identification with everything, 
And then this process becomes still, cool. And the Buddha said, that is the highest happiness. It's complete peace. No more greed, no more hatred, no more delusion, and no more of all the troubles they cause. So when that happens in the course of a lifetime, the remainder of that lifetime as the body is still operating on its fuel that it still has left to go, there's no attachment. That person isn't doing anything out of one of those roots. There's no clinging. And there's what is said is they don't make any karma. There's no result coming back to that person because there's no like intention for um, any connection with that. They do a lot of good, most of them. Incredibly selfless and supportive and all kinds of wonderful things that they can do in the world, but they're free from the results of it and free from um, wanting to have it go a certain way. Does that make sense? Yeah. What's still left to finish? One way that they talk about in Thailand, they talk about the process of getting enlightened is that your work is finished. And uh, this monk named Ajahn Mahabua, how many of you have ever heard of him? He's a very famous um, monk in Thailand. Sometimes I've heard him called the Arahant of the Age. He's an incredible person and um, incredible teacher. And uh, his sister also realized Nibbana, and she came to him and she told him, I've finished my work. And he said, well, it took you long enough. <laughs> Is that a typical brother answer or what? <laughs> And we met one of her students, um, who's also known to be fully enlightened. And you know, it's just that you know you start to get a sense of kind of what what that's about. And um, yeah, that's the answer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is that the self? It depends on who you ask. No, it's definitely not a self. And this is one thing that different traditions will talk about this in different ways. Uh, if you listen to some of the Thai forest masters, they'll talk about the the knowing. So it's like, what is it that knows? It's not a self. It's really, then they'll use the, the Dhamma as a synonym. You know, it's like as our process of these khandas, these components, the process that we think of as ourselves, comes to that realization and is, develops that ability to observe and sort of drop into the knowing. 
that's where the realizations arise that cause the letting go. But that knowing isn't a self. And they'll also sometimes use the word chitta, like heart, mind, and say things like the chitta will never die, the chitta never dies. And it's because it's, they're talking about the chitta element, like there's, it never is born. It's a quality more than it is an object. So we solidify things in our way of seeing. And this is why even in many traditions, they'll use the metaphor, I guess maybe simile, of a movie with film. And each frame is separate. And as you look at the sequence, it looks like one continuous kind of picture. And then that's the way we think we are, a thing. But it's actually just frame by frame, change by change. Things just keep moving on, and there's nothing solid there. It's just an image. That's one way to think about it. Do you have anything you'd like to add? Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. Anybody else have anything? You... Her question, if, if, I don't know your name, Lisa. Lisa's question, um, I, I guess I'm still hearing, well, what then is reborn? Like if there's no self, I mean, I, I guess there's a distinction between not self and no self, but. So not really. I mean, I think that's just semantics, so no really. Form, I mean, the, the form is not the self, the, the consciousness is not the self, the perceptions, the volitions, none of that is the self. But the process continues. The process continues. And the karma is just the, the results of actions that keep traveling along with that process. So there's still desire. There's still craving. And that craving is the push. So... Some, there's a, a lot of studies um, that, that were done by um, a professor, I think it was a professor, Dr. Ian Stevenson. And he studied children who remembered past lives. And a lot of times these would be children who remembered um, Things like where they lived, family members. There are stories that the parents could identify kind of like what village they came from and go there. And the child could name people and go into the house where he used to live and knew where everything was and all this kind of thing. And it's all kinds of sort of amazing stories. And a lot of times these children who remembered their previous life so clearly died in an accident or sudden death as a relatively younger person. And so there's, this, there's a lot of life energy there that gets cut off really quickly, and there's a lot of desire for that re- rebirth, and there's a lot of push to get back into a, like a human form. And so it's, it's kind of like when you start to get a sense of the, the process nature of this, 
and the information that kind of carries on with that process, then you start to kind of see, well, it's, it doesn't have to have a fundamental core. Do we have tissues here? Oh, right here. Sorry. Try not to blow my nose right into your ear. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, Zach? Yeah. How might the craving for non-existent be reborn? And how might that manifest as a lesson for those who maybe commit suicide or something like that as a rebirth? It sounds like maybe like a negative aspect of the bottom in the sense like you recognize the limitations of rebirth, but not in necessarily a positive way. Okay, so I need to hear the first part again. Could you restate your question? So the, the craving, how might the... Um, the craving? The craving for non-existence manifest oh. in rebirth, and what are the implications for that? I don't think it's much different from the craving for rebirth to the craving to be. So there are these different kinds of craving, to exist, to not exist... The craving for sen- the sensual desire, um, and it's—I don't think it's much different. Uh, it's kind of interesting. You mentioned suicide, and I found it interesting in the texts in the in the early Buddhist texts that there's never any. Let's see how to say this. You don't have the same kind of condemnation. Like, there's no like, oh, that being that what that process, that being is gonna go to a bad place. You don't have that in Buddhism. So I feel like that is um, comforting, first of all, to many of us. If anyone's had that, um, got gotten close to someone who's gone through that. It's more like there's whatever our mental states are do have an effect on what happens next, but there's always that process of change, and um, it. I don't think that it has a lot of difference if it's the craving to exist or to not exist. There's still a craving. They're still pushed on by the craving. It's not necessarily... Um, we might, you know, you when when you were born, you already had some abilities, tendencies, propensities, likes and dislikes, and you know, if you pay attention to children, um, those of you who have children, you might notice that there's a lot there already. It's not like they're just blank slates, like s- some people used to say. And they're in this whole new context. So that context is going to have a lot of um, influence. And then maybe there are some, well, there will be patterns that, could, that will come up again. And it, it gets influenced and affected by kind of what they meet in this, this next incarnation or rebirth. Yeah. So, I'm going to try to take a step back to the to the prior question, mm-hmm. and um, 
if I go too far down uh, a rabbit hole, just pull me out. Okay. Because, you know, I have a tendency to go there. But because I've been struggling with these, like so many people, right? The, the, the concept of the, the lack of the self, which on paper seems right until you start punching holes like everyone does. Because at, at the end of the day, whether you believe in rebirth or not, and I have these discussions with my, my son, who is a deep believer, and I am not, from a scientific standpoint, and we have this constant argument. But even if you take all of that apart, and then, look, everything that the Buddha tells you to do is to live with virtue. And there are other philosophy schools, like Stoicism, that tell you exactly the same thing. And whether, you know, there is rebirth or there isn't, we should all live with virtue just to be in a better world at the time that we're here. But the one thing that I found that got me a little bit closer, but I'm nowhere near. <laughs> it's just like, it's very mm -hmm. far away. It was uh, a couple of lectures by the uh, Vietnamese uh, Zen master, uh, Thai, Thich Nhat Hanh. Yeah. And he talks about the fact, he takes, he takes Buddhist philosophy and science and puts them together and says, there isn't such thing as birth and death because there isn't such thing. You cannot create something from nothing or convert something from nothing or, or end something. So he uses yeah. science, and he says, you have energy and you have matter, and you transform those things, but those mm -hmm. things are constant. Now, that doesn't answer the question, ultimately, as to, is it energy, is it matter, is it both, is it the mind, is it consciousness? So maybe there is something there, but the point is, you know, he goes through the whole explanation that there is no such thing as birth and death, because everything comes from something else, if he uses the example of piece of paper, he says, well, this piece of paper has the cloud, the cloud that had the water, the rain into the tree, and then the tree was cut. So everything has a continuum, right? So from that perspective, the closest that I have gotten to it, because yeah. of my predilection for scientific thought, is that when you look at the advances that science has done with studying DNA, DNA contains ultimately a lot of those traits and characteristics. Mm -hmm. Now, how that DNA is tied to the more faith concept of rebirth, I don't know. I'm just saying. Okay, that. so but just to kind of add something from the suttas to that, the Buddha said you need three things for a, a human being or any living being to be born. You need the, the sperm, the fertilized egg, and a living being. So the idea is the living being is already there and comes into this situation. DNA is going to come from those parents. The DNA also, if you, if you look at it, goes back to billions of years. Sure, so it doesn't get created yeah. somehow. Yeah, yeah. There's no, so everything, everything was, is there and then it transforms energy matter, matter, or matter mm -hmm. different types of matter or combination of both. Science sure. has been able to even now convert energy into matter. And this is a discussion of how the body comes to be. But it doesn't tell us how life comes to be. Right? In a, in a way, what, what, yes, but the point is that you, you can look at how life is coming to be, but if you look at DNA, it's just sort of a set of characteristics that are essentially your inheriting a significant amount of things that happened before. Now, sure. Whether, whether there's a separate spiritual entity that then enters mm -hmm. that, and that has anything to do with DNA, of course, I don't know. I just 
interesting, it's part of the exploration right. and the complexity of trying to find an answer. The way I solved it, or I resolved it for myself, is by, by accepting that I probably will never know, at least if I'm, if I'm right, I'll never know if my son <laughs> is right, and I will know eventually. <laughs> and then, um, and then, but even if I don't know, it seems very clear to me that it's hard to argue with the virtuous living that the Well, of course, from yes. The, from a philosophical point of view. And from the point of view of every religion that I know of. Yeah, but I think you know, there is unique, unique in regards to monotheistic Western religions where there is an omnipresence and it's not experiential and there is mandates and there's also... Of course, a God, a God Buddhism is, is unique in, in that in way. In that sense, I think it, it is a very advanced for something that developed so long ago, very advanced in the way it looks at morality and how, if everyone follows those precepts, it would be a much different world, whether we all get to reform or not, versus a lot of the religions that have created a significant amount of war, pain, and effort. Now, okay. I think I think we've taken that enough enough into the rabbit hole. <laughs> Thank you. But this question always comes up with teachers because it's the big question. But teachers in the past have said, because um, I liked your word experiential, um, that Buddhism is experiential. Buddha wanted us to know the truth from our own experience, and so that the question is the rebirth isn't the question you're supposed to be asking because it's like looking to the future. It's like not being hmm. here now. It's like if you can be... Yeah, I don't know if... Before death yeah. and be asking what's going to happen to me after I die, you can just say, here I am. And I think that's an answer that uh-huh. someone would get give who hasn't experienced that directly yet in this life, and you can experience uh-huh. that. So the Buddha not only wanted us to experience it, that's the way it works. There's only one way we can really understand and completely awaken. It's through direct experience. Mm -hmm. It's not something we can learn. It's not an intellectual understanding. It's something that changes within because of our insight and direct experience of what's happening. So the question, you know, like people feel like, well, I'm not going to know that because I don't have these powers of recall of past lives and the understanding that the Buddha had at the night of his enlightenment, seeing all this before him. But there is, I think I said the other day, another avenue, which is wisdom. And a, a knowing from inside. Now, this is... Hard to explain, but it's something that you may have experienced with certain things. Like if you, your mind becomes still, and usually it requires that, and you're maybe not even at the moment trying to discover anything. The mind goes still, and something arises that provides insight. You know something to be true. Even in some states of consciousness, you can realize something. You know that that's how it works. You come out of that state of consciousness into normal consciousness, and you cannot explain that, or you cannot understand it, but you still know it. Does that make sense? You can't. It doesn't make sense from normal consciousness, but you know that that's how it works. 
that that is how it works. That is a very quite common experience for people to know they've had past lives. People who are very um, skeptical and have, you know just feel like there's no way that's the way it works um, might have spontaneous memories, and it's it's like. Um, I know I've heard Ajahn Brahm say once someone has past life memory, nobody can convince them otherwise. It's a much different kind of thing. It's not, you know, it's not something that's fabricated in the mind or, you know, like it's just a very different experience. And also it... Yeah. It's it. That's more like the kind of realization and that kind of knowing can happen. You know, and and um, I met a woman who she was um, a librarian, I think, and she was very scientific in her thinking. And one day, this past life memory just came up and unfolded in front of her. And then she did the research <laughs> and found. Um, you know how accurate it was, and she she already knew, but she wanted to verify it. And there are people who have incredible experiences like this, and it doesn't mean what I've found is that if people talk about them, it doesn't really convince somebody who hasn't. I think the the main point is keep an open mind. Um, you know, a lot of the things that the Buddha says, we can. We can verify ourselves to be true. And then do we want to just kind of keep this, you know, we can we can look into these five khandas and get a sense of, yeah, I know this body is going to disintegrate. It's going to go back to the elements. Obviously the, obviously, the definition of what is a self was pretty understood at the time of the Buddha to be something that lasts, that doesn't change. Even in some suttas, it talks about how if, it, if this body was mine, if it was a self, it was me, I would be able to control it. I would be able to make it do what I want it to do. So it's another idea of what, what would be a self and that it would not deteriorate, it would not change. Well, people can have that feeling of, I know this person. This happens a lot more than we think, actually. Um, and, and, you know, most of the time, any of us observing this would just be speculating, you know, oh, you know, love at first sight. And it, and it really can be very, I mean, my mother and father, you know, they were, my father was interested in finding a, a, a girlfriend, and he talked to this visiting kind of auntie of the people he was living with, and she said, oh, those girls at Veldkamp is their last name. Those Veldkamp girls, yeah, they might be good. So he went to their house on a Sunday, and he was interested in meeting the, the first unmarried one in the line. 
And the two older ones were already in, involved. And so they said, yeah, that would be, you know. And she's not here right now. She's at church. And he said, well, I'll come back. So he came back. And that was it. They never dated anybody else. They were together till my father died. And you really get the sense there was something bigger going on there. <laughs> you know, but, yeah, who knows? Maybe they do. Yeah, so there are a lot there are a lot of reports that talk about how people can have very severe dementia and not recognize family members for a long time and then shortly before they die they can call their family members by name and talk to them about serious things and then they die. And Ajahn Brahm I, if you haven't, if you don't know about him, I would recommend you look him up and listen to some talks. But he says that his he believes, or his I don't know how confident he is, but I think he's pretty confident of this that he feels like the mind is already pulling away from the body, so the disease is in the brain. It's not the mind that continues. That's not where the disease is. So if the, if the mind is pulling away from the body, then this is possible. And it makes a lot of sense. Did you want to say something? Mm-hmm. And she was didn't have dementia, any of that, but she was talking to her dear friend about making sure that she put the dress on at the end of the bed. There was no dress there. Or because she was going away and you know, she wanted to wear the special dress. And, you know, yeah. that separation, because that was not my mother, you mm. know, as you knew her. Yeah, yeah. But that was just right before. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of reports and experiences that people have that can give us the sense very strongly that there is something beyond this life. And then there are people who remember or access the reality of there being an interim and then a rebirth. And there are people who remember, like the Buddha did, past lives over and over and over, you know, like what could have happened in the past, and even can relate to people in their present life, understand better the relationship they have with them because they can see 
a relationship with that same person in the past that helps it make sense. It does, doesn't it? Well, there's that continuing on, but it doesn't go on. Well, it might go on forever. <laughs> I don't know what forever is, but you know, the wheel of samsara is circular, and this continues on until there is awakening, and then it goes silent. So the. The Buddha adamantly said it's not the same mind. Right. So that's what I'm So that process continues, but you can't call it the same one. Even though on a conventional level he said he talked about his past lives. But on the ultimate level, it's not the same being over and over and over again. But through all of that. And then there was a, a disciple of his, one of the monks, who said well, but, you know, that's, that's what happens. It's me, you know, like coming into the next life and enjoying things here and there and being, you know, um, experiencing the result of the actions I did in the past and all that, and the Buddha was adamant. That is not how it works. He said how it works is dependent origination. There's still ignorance. There's still craving. It gives rise to a new living being. So, how are we going to verify that? We're going to keep practicing. So, is there a self or a non-self? I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm so ignorant. Or is this all part of that great emptiness? What the Buddhists, the Buddha. Actually, there are times when he didn't answer that question. Again, someone brought up like it's the wrong question in a way. Um, he didn't answer that question because he said, whatever I tell this person, they're going to be confused. Um, no, uh, was, well, the, the, the point is to start to investigate cause and effect. So then you see the Buddha's like, instead of thinking... Instead of thinking there's going to be an everlasting self or there's going to be an end, annihilation, he said neither of those are the actual case. He said instead you look at dependent origination, that because there is this this craving and clinging and becoming and dying, and the ignorance is still there, so then there's this reoccurrence of mind and body coming again, and the senses, and the contact, and the feeling, and the craving, and the clinging, and it just keeps repeating. And we can see it repeat in our immediate experience, and we can, with the insight, see it repeating through lifetimes. And it's processed. There's a kind of um, desire that's wholesome. So that would be that chanda desire. The desire to come here, for example, is a good desire. It helps lead us to non-desire. 
So that's what's happening when one has the desire to awaken. It leads to the ending of desire. It's kind of like that. Okay. The craving is the like the it's energy, the, the driver, it's the, it's the and the karma is um, kind of an imprint. Like, like let's say the karma is you were a, a pianist and you practice, 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 and you die, and then you get reborn, and you're Mozart, and you hear a symphony, and you go play it on a piano. It's a mold or it's a pattern. It's a, yeah, and that's what comes along. But the craving, the desire, that's what pushes the whole thing. Yeah. Okay. So, um, if, if there's no force. Mm-hmm. The craving's over. The craving's over, like what's coming to the Buddha. Yes. You mean if there were lots of enlightened beings? Yeah, yeah. Lots of peace, I think, is what would happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sure. Can I ask a dependent origination question? Sure, you can. I mean, you're sitting there, and I'm standing here, and that's the conventional level. That's one place where you can get a lot done. And the super break is with, with ignorance, the ending of ignorance. And the Vedana is feeling. So if we, um, you see something, your eye works, so the object, you can see it. There's a consciousness arising to make sense of it. And then immediately there's a feeling, like seeing a person. See, what's the feeling? Maybe it's positive, maybe it's negative, or maybe it's just neutral, but there is some kind of feeling. Or you see a, some certain kind of food, you like it, there's a feeling. And then the feeling is a good place when once there's a feeling, let's say it's a kind of strong feeling, and... It's something you want, or it's something you want to push away. That's the opportunity to stop. Before the craving is already there, 
but at that feeling craving level, then you can stop so that you're not going to go into clinging and grasping, holding on. That's one place. And the other place is through the insight that eliminates ignorance, knowledge and vision. And then there's no more coming to any state of being, as they say in the suttas. Right. But let's say that insight comes, like according to the story about Ajahn Gana, as Ajahn Brahm and Ajahn Pasano and various monks were living with Ajahn Chah, and Ajahn Chah, one night he probably had the feeling or the uh, awareness that something had happened, and he said, so is anybody here free from defilements? And he went around asking, and they said, no, I have to file this. <laughs> when he gets to Ajahn Gana, he was pretty young at that stage, and and he said, no, I don't. And Ajahn Chah said, come with me, and they went up into his living quarters, into his hut, and talked for a long time. And um, Ajahn Brahm said they were all like trained to hear. <laughs> what are they saying up there? And then when they came down, Ajahn Chah said, yeah, He's finished. And he was young. And um, so his, like, the last 50 years has all been, you know, showing up as this really kind, happy person. Um, he was, he did a lot of walking through the jungles, and he got intercepted by um, these, uh, I don't know, was it, insurrectionists so there's this like you know kind of um, fighters they thought he was a spy and so they held him there and they're questioning him questioning him and finally they they decided no he's <laughs> he's not a spy and eventually they they decided to let him go and he started going and then they started talking like hey Everything was so much better when he was here. <laughs> let's let's go get him. Let let's go let's go invite him back. They invited him to stay for the rains period. <laughs> he said, I, "I can't. I already have a commitment." <laughs> you know, it's like the presence is just uh, amazing. You know, and so you know something profound has happened. And when someone actually doesn't have greed, hatred, or delusion. The way they can teach, or the way—I mean, not—they're not all gifted teachers. If they weren't before, they're not going to become gifted teachers. But they understand the Dhamma all the way, and the way that they they live in the world is is just really different. And so, you know, it's like, okay. How do we come to understand what's really going on? So first it has to kind of start to settle in in the intellectual level. And then when we practice and things happen, we have some context for it. So that's what we're doing. I have another sutta to show you. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I was, I 
Oh, okay, okay. So, this is probably a sutta, or at least the story you've heard before, but we'll look at the, the actual text and see if it brings it a little deeper. So this is called an arrow, and it's in the Sanyutta Nikaya 36.6. Mendicants, an unlearned, or unlearned ordinary person, feels pleasant, painful, and neutral feelings. A learned noble disciple also feels pleasant, painful, and neutral feelings. What then is the difference between them? And then the, you know, the, the Buddha answers them. When an unlearned, ordinary person experiences painful physical feelings, they sorrow and wail and lament, beating their breast and falling into confusion. They experience two, two feelings or two kinds of feeling. They experience the physical feeling and the mental feeling. It's like a person who's struck with an arrow only to be struck with a second arrow. That person experiences the feeling of the two arrows, the physical and the mental. How many of you know this simile? Yeah, quite a few. It's very, very popular kind of simile. But let's look at what the Buddha says happens. When they're touched by a painful feeling, they resist it, which is normal, right? They resist it. The underlying tendency to repulsion towards the painful feeling is what underlies that resistance. When touched by painful feeling, they look forward to enjoying sensual pleasures. Why? Because an unlearned, ordinary person doesn't understand any escape from painful feeling apart from sensual pleasures. Whether we do something to relieve the pain, not that that's a wrong thing to do, but to understand what's driving us and, you know, seeking that comfort and wanting that to make us feel better, and it does, we still haven't dealt with the suffering that will keep coming as long as we use this as the method. So we don't understand the escape from painful feeling apart from sensual pleasures. Since they look forward to enjoying sensual pleasures, the underlying tendency to greed for sensual feeling underlies that. So you go right from hatred to to, uh, greed. They don't truly understand the feeling's origin, ending, gratification, drawback, and escape. So this is this has got two more pieces from what I talked about earlier, the gratification, danger, and escape. This is the origin, how it comes how it comes up, how it goes away. Can you see? Are you, you look having to look through me, you can see. How it comes up, how it goes away, and what is it that I'm getting out of it? And why is that a problem? And then how do I let go of that and step out of this cycle entirely? The underlying tendency to ignorance about neutral feeling underlies this. So this is where we're confused, we're deluded. We we don't understand how to change this flipping back and forth between moving back and forth between pleasure and pain. If they feel a pleasant feeling, they feel it attached. If they feel, is that, 
the exact yes if they feel a, a painful feeling they feel it attached if they feel a neutral feeling they feel it attached so we're identifying with each of those feelings there's no there's no awareness in between there's no like distance it's we own it it's us we're completely into it they're called an unlearned ordinary person who is attached to rebirth, old age, and death, to sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, and distress, who is attached to suffering, I say. Now the noble disciple. When a learned noble disciple experiences painful physical feelings, they don't sorrow or wail or lament, beating their breast and falling into confusion. They experience one feeling, Physical, not mental. It's like a person who's struck with an arrow but does not st- is not struck with a second arrow. That person would experience the feeling of one arrow, the physical arrow. When they're touched by a painful feeling, they don't resist it. So the Buddha is like, you turn towards a painful feeling. You don't push it away. There's no underlying tendency to repulsion towards that painful feeling underlying this. When touched by a painful feeling, they don't look forward to enjoying sensual pleasures. I'm not just going to right away try to pull something to me that's going to cover the pain up. Why? Because a learned noble disciple understands an escape from painful feeling apart from sensual pleasures. Since they don't look forward to enjoying sensual pleasures, there's no underlying tendency to greed for sensual feeling underlying that. They truly understand the feeling's origin, ending, gratification, drawback, or danger, and escape. There's no underlying tendency to ignorance about neutral feeling underlying that. So what do you think that is? What is that alternative? What is that escape from painful feeling apart from sensual pleasure? You're, you're staying with that painful feeling. You know it's going to end. It ends. You're not dragged into the next round in the same way. If they feel a pleasant feeling, they feel it detached. If they feel a painful feeling, they feel it detached. If they feel a neutral feeling, they feel it detached. They're called a learned noble disciple who's detached from rebirth, old age, and death, from sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, and distress, who is detached from suffering, I say. A wise, what's the difference between the noble disciple and the ordinary person? A wise and learned person isn't affected by feelings of pleasure and pain. This is the great difference in the skill between the wise and the ordinary. 
A learned person who has assessed the teaching discerns this world and the next. Desirable things don't disturb their mind, nor are they repelled by the undesirable. Both favoring and opposing are cleared and ended. They are no more. Knowing the stainless, sorrowless state, they who have gone beyond rebirth understand rightly. That's it. Yes. So, you know, I had a headache uh, on Saturday, and I asked them to get painkillers, and they sent me to the medicine cabinet. So, would, you know, a learned disciple not take painkillers? Would they have, let's say they were filling their teeth, would they not take a, you know, a Okay, so it depends, right? There's nothing wrong with taking the painkillers. Um, the example you bring up about the teeth, I happen to have played with some because of various reasons. I decided I wouldn't use any Novocaine or whatever they give you. And, that, um, and so I would be present, not so much directly with... I was <coughs> meditating, basically, whenever I had dental work. And I, the, the way I would meditate would be I'd go to my toes. You know, so you're, like, you're, you're kind of like half reclining, you know, in the dentist chair, and they're drilling, and the whole body is like this. And I'd go to the toes, and I'd relax them. And I would relax the calves, and I just go gradually up the body, just relaxing, 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 relaxing. Get to the top and go back. The toes are like this again. Down, just, just. I just did that the whole time. And I did. I've done this many times. Well, I don't have that great of teeth. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, and then I had actually had a root canal without anesthetic. I had um, surgery on my vocal cords without anesthetic. And, and they actually did spray some anesthetic spray just to keep me from gagging uh, too much. But, you know. And the purpose, what I learned from it is, first of all, you don't have to freak out <laughs> when there's pain. One of the beauties of this during dental work is because there's no malice at all. The dentist is trying to help you. It's not like, and you know that it's going to end at some point. And dentists get a little nervous um, when you want to do this sometimes, and they'll say, please let me know, raise your hand, do something to let me know if I should stop. And so, you know, it's a pretty safe experiment container. And... um, yeah, I learned that the power of the mind could make that all tolerable enough. And sometimes it's useful because sometimes when you have something strong happening, like sometimes people get upset that there's noise when they're meditating. But if you go into meditation and sometimes you have to kind of push against something a little bit, and then it makes your meditation stronger. And... I learned that over time, so in the beginning, I didn't go to the pain, right, to the source of the pain with my awareness. But later, I could. I could go you know, through the body, be there with the pain where it's 
happening, go through the body, and yeah, not a problem. So I have to remember at the time of the Buddha, they didn't have all that medication. People just had to figure out how to deal with it. And when the Buddha got injured or he was sick, there's always like, you know, he would mindfully endure it without complaining. Do you think that's like par for the course? In other words, any noble disciple would not need to take painkillers? No, I think that noble disciples might take painkillers. Maybe that's not what they want to do for practice right now. You know, that's okay. And it's okay to, I mean, you want your mind to be as clear as it can be, you know, but there's, it's kind of back to that verse that said, do what you can, you know, like you can do what you can't, do what you can to help the body be healthy, do what you can to help your body be pretty comfortable. Um, there's plenty of pain anyway that you can't stop. Um, Yeah, they feel it. You feel it. They they never say you don't feel it, but you feel it detached. You're not you're not pushed around by it. You're not um, you know, like yeah. <laughs> you first and then I'll come. Yeah. I, I deal with it. It's, yeah. it's just there. Um, it, I, um, you know, I did, you know, carefully, like, move some outdoor furniture outside, you know, just like a spring. And, like, I'm a disaster right now. So, oh, yeah. You know, um, but I, you know, and this, this accident was like eight years ago. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah. you know, I, I look forward to the summer. I've got, you know, all these yeah. concert tickets, and I'm thinking, yeah. and I was a mess. You know, like, and thank goodness for this practice, because I was able to um, find refuge in in just being, you know. But I, I really had to work at it. Yeah. And then I had to take some time and try to figure out some Exactly. It's like the mind goes into the future, 
It's making up all this stuff. We're not really connected to the fact that whatever it is we're experiencing, it is impermanent. There's no question about that. And if we, just like what you said beautifully, if we stay well, in that present moment. Yeah. Yes. Glad you came out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Carolyn? Yes, yes, yes. That's right. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. It's like, did we back to that one that's observing, that knower? That knower is watching depression. It is not depressed. That knower sees the pain. It is not in pain itself. No. <laughs> keep asking, who am I? <laughs> yeah. If you really keep asking, who am I, and you let the answers come from deep inside, you'll get the answer. They're, they're, yeah. That exercise was very powerful for me one time. Yeah, that back and forth. It was actually like, you know, I don't know if they, you did it the same way. It's like this other person is saying, who are you? And then you go through all the identities, all the labels. And then, but who are you? But who are you? And I got a very decisive image. And it was, it, this was in the context of a Qigong class. So working with energy. And the image was the center core is just energy. And there's nothing else. And that core of energy, I knew, was the same core of energy for all beings. (laughs) No self. (laughs) But 
you know, we may have to come to some kind of experience like that again and again before we don't get caught up in me and mine. Oh, yeah. She'll interrupt me. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> Any other thoughts, questions? Well, thank you for digging in to these not so easy <laughs> ideas. And I um, invite you to really mull it over, play with it, consider it. I don't have a plan yet for tomorrow evening. We could just discuss, or I could pull out another sutta. I was actually thinking about one called Six by Six. Um, it's in the middle length discourses, but it gets, it's just pretty. Mm, detailed, and I don't know if you're really going to like it. Um, So I don't know if you have any requests. You're welcome to voice them. We'll also, yeah, we could, we also will have time on Wednesday morning. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.